Welcome to Refactor This, sponsored by vFunction. In each episode, we talk application modernization tools, concepts, and advice with industry experts. My name is Oliver White, and on this episode of Refactor This, I'm joined by Heather Vankura. Heather is a well-known, globetrotting Java community leader, international keynote speaker, author, fellow podcaster, chair of the Java Community Process, or JCP, and currently senior director of standards, strategy, and architecture at Oracle. Given Heather's background, I'm very excited to hear her perspective on application modernization, Java developer advocacy, and related matters. Heather, it's wonderful to connect with you again, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Oliver. It's excited to connect with you again as well. Uh, looking forward to the, our conversation today. Oh, so am I. Aside from that intro I just gave, is there anything else you would like to add? Um, Favorite ice cream, I perhaps? Would... <laughs> <laughs> we can say that for the end, but I oh. guess, you know, there are a few other things I do that aren't maybe as public. So yeah, I could just mention those. So um, in addition, I also do some uh, responsible for developer relations for the MySQL community. And I have a bit of an internal role that focuses on coordinating efforts around Oracle's participation in uh, standards and open source projects. So that's why that title is a little bit broader than my role that's the most vis visible, which is working with the Java developer community. And then I also do quite a bit of outreach work around the world around women in tech and also bringing the next generation of developers to Java and, and teaching younger uh, aspiring developers, I guess, to code. So I do a lot of nonprofit work in area. Oh, that's excellent. I hope you'll be able to tell us a little more about that as our conversation emerges. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, your your title is Director of Standards, Strategy, and Architecture at Oracle. So how do you actually spend your workday? And what has cha maybe changed about your workday in the last uh, two, three, four years? Yeah. Well, my workday has definitely changed in the last two years because I would say prior to uh, pandemic in 2020, I was spending at least half of my time traveling or doing virtual traveling. So that stopped in 2020 where I wasn't doing any more traveling. And a lot of my job really did focus around outreach and it still does. It's just that I've changed the way I do my outreach. And I would say, you know, in the way I think about my work, I have really three roles. And I would say that I spend the majority of my time on the Java community, Java developer outreach role. But then I also have a team that works with me on MySQL community outreach. And then the last thing that I do is because of my role leading the Java community process, I'm in a group at Oracle that's in the chief, the chief architect versus like product development. So I'm kept separate in that kind of that standards participation because that's something that Oracle does a lot of. And so I was tasked with, especially during the pandemic, kind of helping to build a community internally of people who are working on, you know, standards related 
types of projects, whether that's formal standards or consortia or, or you know, increasingly open source projects. So looking, looking at ways that those people can share because there's people all across the organization. So sometimes, you know, when developers are, are out there working on projects, you feel a little bit disconnected. So help help to kind of tie all those efforts together for people so that they have some sense of community. So, you know, looking at those three things, most of my work does focus on how to bring people together and that human element and, you know, how to communicate and outreach to the community and within the community. So most of my work focuses on those things in one of those three areas. And then, you know, of course, the aspect that used to be travel focused was speaking at software development conferences or user group meetings. And now I'd still do some of that. It's just that it's done in a virtual format still these days for me and in, in the virtual format where I know some people are getting out there more in person. It just hasn't worked out for me to be doing that quite yet. I've, I've gone to a couple conferences, but that's how my work day is going these days. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I can imagine that building communities when you're not able to really see anybody in person has, has taken quite a hit. What are some of the ways that you've gotten around the limitations of being physically present in, in certain places? And would you say they've been successful? Um, there definitely are limitations and I have a couple of examples. So one being an kind of an existing community within a, a community and, and one for like a new community that I started during the pandemic. So I think, you know, for example, take my role as chairperson of the JCP. So I lead the executive committee. So the executive committee of the Java community process used to meet in person for several of our meetings and also at developer conferences, but we haven't met in person since 2019. So it was actually, you know, we had meeting in October 2019. So it's been three years since we met together in person. And so, you know, we, we have continued on with the relationships that we built and we've been meeting virtually since October 2019 because our first face-to-face -face was supposed to be April 2020 where we would meet in person together. And so I think we've, you know, carried on with the activities that we would normally do, but doing all of it virtually. And I think it has worked, but I think you start to see, you know, some of the relationships, you know, kind of start to, I wouldn't say deteriorate, but fade a little bit. So you kind of lose some of that connection that you build in face-to-face -face relationships that you don't have necessarily when you're only meeting virtually. So it takes those opportunities of being together where you can relate as human beings and like that more, you know, real sense, in-person sense versus just through a computer. Um, but then there's also the example of, you know, within the Java community, I started an, an initiative in early 2020 within the, the JCP called Java in Education. And we've built that community all virtually, but albeit a lot of the people that are participating are people that I already had relationships with because I was, 
I have, you know, over my career, over the last 20 years, spent quite a bit of my time traveling and meeting developers in person where they're at in the community space, you know, whether it be a conference or user group meeting or, you know, whatever it happens to be, whatever opportunities are present. So, and that, and that I would say the same, you know, the, we've always met together virtually and we continue to meet together virtually and maybe we'll do some in-person things. You know, I am planning to go to Java One in coming up very soon in a few weeks. So we'll meet together then in person, but it's challenging for sure. I think it helps when you have already an existing relationship. I think it is more challenging to start and maintain a relationship that starts in a virtual space where a lot of times in the past, when I was doing more traveling, I would meet people virtually. And then, you know, we would talk and share about what I could do in their community, whether it be speak at an event or come visit them in a, in a meeting but we would already have established that relationship a lot of times only online. And then, you know, you reinforced it when you meet in person, but now that aspect is a little bit missing in some of the interactions that I have. Yeah. I'd say everyone is feeling that pretty acutely if they've been out and about, I doubt we've seen each other in person for at least five years. Exactly. You and I. So, I, uh, yeah. yeah. So depending on, you know, leveraging the existing short versions of in-person time to build a, an online relationship can be very beneficial. And it makes me wonder, are we, are we in a bad place for the future when it comes to meeting new people? <laughs> right. It, it is more challenging to meet new people. Although, you know, I've tr I try different things because that's my nature of being kind of a connector collab collaborative type personality. So I've tried like lunch club in the pandemic, which is, you know, all you know, done mostly virtual where you just get matched up with people. I've joined a social network called Chief, uh, hmm. where that's a combination hybrid, I guess is the new word to say between in person and online, but a lot of, you know, online connecting. So it's definitely, you know, there's definitely technology creates all these opportunities, but there's still the human element of it where, you know, there's just not much that can replace that ability to see someone face to face. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about how the Java community process works. And let's say, how often does the idea of helping users continuously modernize their application stack come into the processes behind the JCP and whether that's kind of a conversation topic at any point. Yeah, we actually did have that conversation. We had the ongoing conversation I, starting back in 2017 uh, when Java shifted to a six month release cycle from, you know, a every three or four years type release cycle. So, you know, some of the motivation behind that was in the thinking of modernization and ability to innovate and release new features and provide still that, you know, security and predictability for the developer community. So we did, in terms of the processes within the JCP, there were some things that we had to discuss and change. So knowing that, you know, the it, and the developer community has the expectation for a faster release cadence. That's what a lot of different technologies and platforms provide, you know, a faster cadence. 
as well as the ability to keep the, the language and the platform up to date. So, you know, moving from having a release every three or four years to having a release every six months, there were processes that we had to change and modernize to be more in keeping with the way software is developed today, which is a faster cadence. And also, of course, you know, open source as well. So a lot of the processes within the JCP were really built more on this, that waterfall style methodology of development and in the time when things were developed within the community, but not as transparently and openly. So the processes, we looked at those and changed them quite a bit to become more modern in terms of still keeping a checks and balances with having the software developed in open source within OpenJDK um, primarily, and also having the vote of the JCP executive committee, which I mentioned earlier, you know, as the balance. So at some point you have to have that time where you stop development and have the right. executive <laughs> committee approve the specifications. So we had to modernize and change our processes to embrace that. So what we did was we eliminated a lot of the fixed milestones that we used to have within the processes of the JCP and made it a longer open development period, but at the same time, not longer because so, so when I say longer in terms of the process, so there's, you know, longer, you longer as, the a, project, as a percentage. <laughs> As a, yeah. yeah, so and then rather than having discrete milestones and open development period and then a vote by the executive committee when things are, you know, just about finalized within the community, maybe you still have a couple of minor improvements, uh, incremental fixes to make, but essentially code is frozen and a vote by the executive committee and then final release. And then of course, you know, looking at things to improve efficiencies. So that means that you have to complete that whole process within six months versus having multiple years. So that's where I said, it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, a disparity between saying it's short, it's longer, but at the same time it's shorter. So in the process, one open development period, you know, approval by the executive committee in the beginning and at the end, but not a discrete um, concrete milestones in the middle with votes in the middle, more of an open source development project happening once the project's approved, and then a vote in the, by the executive committee in the end, and then final release of the platform. So like, for instance, we just did the release of Java 19. And, you know, that was approved by the executive committee a couple of weeks ago. And then the official launch and final release happens after the vote. So that was quite a bit of change that we made. I would say, you know, the most significant amount of change that the, have been made in the processes of the JCP since it was started back in 1999, before I even started hmm. working with the Java developer community. Thanks for that background. It's very interesting to get a look into the process and, and what happens. I believe I'm, I'm not uh, in the wrong when I propose that in the early days of this new JDK release plan where things were going from four years to six months, there was a little bit of apprehension in the community about, you know, should I upgrade? What happens when I do upgrade? When it comes to large enterprises that are working with aging applications, so older versions of Java EE, for example, web servers like WebLogic or WebSphere, what does each new JDK mean for these 
larger customers that are maybe more reluctant to embrace such a quick release cycle. Right. I think you're right. There was apprehension in the beginning. And I think there was apprehension combined with almost disbelief that it would be able to happen, that there would actually be releases (laughs) (laughs) coming out every six months. And actually, I was counting the releases. So ever since 2017, when we then it was announced, you know, and we made these improvements in the processes and and approved them to be put into place, there's been 10 releases, and they've happened every six months. So there is that predictability aspect. So I think part of the apprehension was that but then also there's this ongoing that kind of legacy mentality that migrating in between Java versions is this really huge project and you know you have to stop everything and just focus on that and migrate your applications in between versions and it takes months and months and months and so there's all those perceptions that had to be overcome when we first started talking about that and when it first started happening there was that reluctance and apprehension but i think what people came to see is that it is predictable you can predict that there will be a release every six months But the other part of it is that it is a much smaller, more digestible release. So when you had Java releases that were so large in terms of a feature set, you're talking about 100 plus different features typically in a Java release. But since we shifted to that release cadence of every six months, the number of features will vary because it's whatever is ready at the time that's being developed with an open JDK and being proposed to be put into that next version is what's going to be put in there. So you'll see it vary between, you know, somewhere like seven or eight to 17 or 18 features. But still, you know, compared to over 100, that's a relatively minor amount, you know, of changes that are being made, but it's more incremental. And there's even more that you see in the pipeline within OpenJDK that's being developed because also the effect is what I've seen from the community perspective is you see more interest from the community and actually contributing into the project because you have that more immediate gratification of if I'm contributing into this, I'm going to see there's a potential that I could see my contribution be incorporated into a platform release in the very near future because it's coming out every six months. And then from the side of the enterprises who are evaluating whether to migrate to a new version, it's transparent, you know, what's being targeted for that release in terms of it's published, you know, these are the enhancement proposals that are targeted for this version. But there's also in combination, those early access release builds that come out throughout the process every couple of weeks. So I think internally enterprises can take those early access builds to test their applications against the build and see what changes might need to be made. And it can be done on a more continuous basis versus the previous legacy way of doing things, you know, where you wait until the release is there and then you take it and you see you have this software development project that's going to take you months to migrate where now you you can make changes along the way. Once you get past Java 8, you can make changes along the way and the migration path in between versions is not as significant amount of work as it used to be. 
So I think the advantages that enterprises can see in terms of, of course, number one, the security that's being put into that most, the most current releases of Java. Also for their developers, you know, having that pro the productivity and being able to take advantage of new features, right? Because I think, you know, that's another factor that enterprise security, number one, but then also productivity and efficiency and performance, right? So I think enterprises at large, as well as developers are seeing the benefits. So developers like, you know, access to all those new innovations, of course, and, you know, the shiny new things, and then enterprises as well, you know, having their developers be more productive, having the performance gains, having that security of a new release, you know, coming out so frequently, always keeping in mind security, any, any new features that are put into the Java platform, that's always been, you know, the top priority, keeping it secure. Right, right. So what I'm hearing is that if you're willing to engage in a certainly less painful than in the past process of upgrading the JDK, you'll, you'll get a few things out of the box and security is, is a huge priority for everyone, obviously. So this is something that comes rather quickly. I wanted to ask you about what you think of when you hear the, the term technical debt and how does technical debt play a, a role with a not only a technology stack, but even the psychology of a team that is looking to modernize and perhaps looking first at upgrading to the latest JDK with all the shiny new features and, and better security and so on. What's been your experience with dealing with technical debt? Well, I, I hear experiences of developers. So I think oftentimes, you know, that there is that reluctance because especially with Java, because things just work, right? So if and there, there are still applications out there that are running on very old versions of Java, which do still work, which on one side, that's, you know, speaking to the advantages and benefits of Java. But on the other hand, it's like, what's the motivation to migrate when the project is going to be so big to migrate if you're on, you know, an older version, you know, pre-Java 8 version. So this kind of that competing mentality of, yes, it would be great, but it's such a huge project. And if it just works, why do I need to change it? And so from my experience, it's more talking with developers and, and helping them to kind of influence the executives to make the investment in migrating to newer versions of Java and, and migrating their applications. So I focus really on the, on those things that I already highlighted, which is the security and the performance, performance of the application, but then all, and also productivity of their developers and the cost savings that are there. But definitely there is that idea that it's going to be too challenging. And I don't really have much more experience in it than <laughs> that in terms of, you know, working on a project myself. So um, you, obviously I hear, I work with a lot of people, yeah. but yeah, I work with a lot of people who are really love to be on that cutting edge, right? So there might be developers out there who also are reluctant, right? So they get stuck in their ways. I mean, I, I have a few examples, you know, now that I'm talking about it, you know, of developers who don't want to learn new things or are happy with things just the way they are, or, you know, it works this way and are maybe more apprehensive about embracing newer modern techniques or tools. 
Although, you know, looking at the developer landscape, you can see, you know, over the last couple of decades, it, it is more an expectation of technical professionals that you do be continuously learning and building out your skill portfolio and being able to apply the right tool for the job, right? And Java, of course, being, you know, one of the most valuable tools that you can have, and it's going to be challenging to find a project where you're not called on to utilize or touch some Java code. But have, having those sure. other things, it's it's just an expectation now. And I think there are still some developers out there who have that reluctance, but more, more the um, challenge that I see is between developers who are wanting to use the newest version and then convincing their management that they that they should be, you know, taking on these, these new projects and then management being concerned about the costs, obviously both financial costs, but more so the costs of hours of technical developer time. That raises a good point. So if a developer wants to initiate a modernization project of some kind, what are the things you think would be useful for them to have in their pocket to bring to executive teams? Well, definitely. So I'll just use the Java example because that's where my <laughs> expertise lies. Sure. And this goes to, you know, one of the talks that I did recently for in the London Java community just a few weeks ago was, you know, how to contribute to Java and open source projects. So, you know, yourself as a developer, if you want to influence the ability to do that, you need to familiarize yourself with what's happening in the community. And the best way to do that is first to observe and see uh, what's happening in the community. What are, what are the, some of the top projects that are being developed? And then how do they apply to your application and your environment that you're in and your, in your current employment, right? So what are some of the upcoming projects that are being worked on that you could take advantage of in your current employment situation? So, and then, you know, once you pick that project, the one that you think is going to be most applicable to your work and where you could have the most gains in terms of your corporation or organization, wherever you're working, follow that project and join that project. So since it's open source, you can follow it and join it. There's mailing lists that you can join and there's issue lists that you can track. And there's, of course, the early access builds. And some projects even have their own independent, uh, a specific build for their project. So start following those and then start trying out the early access builds, especially if there's a project specific one. And, you know, maybe even test it against your application so you can see what kind of changes might need to be made to your application to take advantage of these new features and functionality. And then, you know, once you become familiar with it, you know, start to think about how you could contribute and start to discuss these things on the mailing list. So this helps, it helps your company, but it also helps you as an individual in terms of establishing yourself within the community. So the way you do that is first by observing. So you, and understanding what's happening, not just going in, you know, blindly and, you know, stating, you know, what it is that you think this project should be doing, but actually getting to know the community and the, the work that's going on there. And then secondly, starting to contribute. So introducing yourself, you know, first of all, saying what your interests are and kind of, you know, what your, 
perceptions or thinking is about the project or maybe some future directions that you can think about, but in an informed way. And then also asking from the project leads, how I want to get involved in this project. How do you think it would be valuable for me to contribute? Mm. And getting those ideas first, if you don't get anything back, you know, make your own suggestions. But in a lot of different open source projects, and especially in some of the ones I'm more, more familiar with in the Java space, there really aren't people who are coming forward and, you know, asking to make contributions. It's a lot of people consuming it. Like I said, I've seen an increase in the people who are contributing, but actually asking that question, how can I contribute and what would be valuable to you as a project lead for this project? And then, you know, once you establish that, what's going to be useful, actually taking the time to do what you say you're going to do and then sharing it in the community as well. So that establishes you within the community and that gives you, puts you in a better position to be able to make contributions in the future, but also to influence the project. And that can be valuable when you have a conversation with your management at the executive level to decide you know, to make investments in modernization of applications that apply to, to certain projects that you're already established yourself as a leader, as a contributor, as a part of the community. Does that make sense? <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And uh, for the people that are interested in processing this level of activity and enjoyment of being involved in a community, I, I think there's no better person to contact than you. <laughs> Thank you. So in the show notes, I hope we, we will be able to put some uh, good resources for Java developers to be able to connect with and better play a role in the future of what they're working on and, and to encourage their team and executive team to feel a little more comfortable with modernization. Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm happy to talk with anyone who's interested in getting involved in the community. And so I will your put stories. your, I'll put your home phone number in this. In the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Last question. Do you have any career advice for senior developers that are now in, now finding themselves in a situation where remote employment is uh, becoming more of a thing or even brand new developers that are looking to get started with Java and, you know, what it might mean for them if they find themselves being asked to start modernizing this uh, aging application? Yeah, well, definitely get involved in the community. So that's my number one tip is getting involved in the community and by doing some of the things that I just talked about, but also continuously learning new things. And I think being selective about that is important because especially as more junior developer, but also as a senior developer, there is so much to learn and that can be overwhelming. So getting specific about the things, the new things that you want to learn and being strategic about that, but definitely being proactive in your learning and also getting involved in the community because from a career perspective, getting involved in the community is going to help you to increase your visibility and expand your network, which no matter what your career aspirations are, those are some of my two you know, top things that you need to do is expand your network and increase your visibility. So be involved in the community is one of the best 
ways to do that. And that in turn is going to give you influence, which obviously, as you make career moves, influence is a highly valuable commodity. So continuous learning strategically, thoughtfully, and getting involved with the community in a thoughtful way as well. So thinking about where you can join and where you can contribute and actually introducing yourself and participating in that community, whichever community it is that you decide to join. All right. Well, Heather, it's been a pleasure talking with you today, and I hope we get to meet again in person sometime soon or uh, maybe in 2030. <laughs> Hopefully sooner than that. Yeah, yes, ideally. Hope to see you again soon. Likewise. So that brings us to the end of our podcast. But for anyone who would like a little bit of fun at the end, we have a lightning round for Heather. Are you ready, Heather? I am ready. Yes. All right. What is the last song you listened to? Well, I had to look this up because you told me that you were going to ask me this yeah. and it was yeah. California Love. Nice. California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you do to stay healthy? I like to not exercise as well as eat healthy. So I'm always looking for new activities to try. I'm a little bit, I can be a fitness fanatic. I sometimes I slack off on that, but definitely, you know, whatever, whatever opportunity comes my way, I take advantage of it to be active. What is one of your favorite comfort foods? Uh, popcorn. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love popcorn. At least it's not something crazy like an entire cheesecake. <laughs> yeah, but you can eat way too much popcorn. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. It's mostly air, though. Uh, yeah. What is one of your favorite movies? That's a tough one. I Ooh. I really enjoy older movies. So actually, during the pandemic, I was watching a lot of older movies. I really enjoyed African Queen. Mm. I have not seen that, but I'm well aware of it. Yes, check it out. Would you ever allow a robot to perform dental hygiene on you? <laughs> um, with a human supervision. Mm. So what if it was a human controlling the robot with some joysticks, that sort of thing? No, I, I think I would need a, a human um, actually physically present on hand to intervene if necessary. All right, good. And last but not least, if you could bring back the T-Rex with cloning, would you vote yes or no to do it? Oh, I think, you know, T-Rex is pretty terrifying to me, you know. I think I watched Jurassic Park too many times or something, so I, I would say no. All right. Well, Heather, it was really a joy to speak with you. Thanks so much for coming on to Refactor This and hope to see you again in the future. Thanks, Oliver. It was fun. Hope to see you soon.